بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. Peace and love, beautiful people. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast. Thank you for being here. I'm recording this at about 11 o'clock at night in New York because I'm on the East Coast leg of the Travelers Tour. For the last 20 years, the part of the world that knows me has known me because I write and record and travel and perform music. It's been almost exactly 20 years since in 2002, BK1, the producer of this podcast, who was my DJ at that time, we rolled out on what for us was a monumental tour because the group that we were opening for released what was for them a monumental album in our particular cohort of underground independent hip-hop music. Back in 2002, Atmosphere dropped this album called God Loves Ugly. And so we rolled out on that tour with them. It was like 65 shows in a really short period of time. We had shows every single day with very few exceptions. Every now and then we'd have a Monday off so that we could wash our clothes and go to the movies and, and relax. But for the most part, we did shows every single day. And that tour is really what started it for me. Not long after that, I released my debut album, which is called Shadows on the Sun. And ever since then, that's what we've done. And the people that have supported us, there was a, a particular cycle and a pattern that we had. We make an album and then we spend months preparing people for it, getting ready for it with this big, long pre-order. And we release tracks and things like that for people to get ready for the album we're about to release. Might do music videos. Then we put the album out. We tour it for a year straight. Then we come home. And we would start working another album. That might take us a year. Sometimes it takes me two years to do. And then we would repeat the cycle. And during the pandemic, I decided, like most people, that I wanted to reimagine and come up with new approaches for what can I offer the world and how do we do it. And so I've been working really hard, me and BK, with this podcast. Uh, this is a new endeavor for us, you know what I'm saying? And so we're doing this tour to let people know, because people are used to coming and seeing us on tour, but a lot of people still don't know that we do this podcast, so we're doing the tour to announce that. Also, we released new music that we didn't give a long lead up for, and it's not a, an album that took me a year to make. Basically, it's a three-song uh, collection, like a three-song body of work that I wanted to release during this time. So we just dropped the 12-inch with those three songs. We've got this podcast rocking. We just did two sold-out shows in Minneapolis, and now we're on the East Coast leg of the tour. If you're hearing this, we dropped this on Mondays, which means that we've still got our Philadelphia show on October 5th. We still have our D.C. show on October 8th. We still have our North Carolina show on the 7th, and then our Atlanta show on October the 8th. And then after that, I do a week of speaking engagements and religious events that are open to the public. I'll spend uh, a week at Duke University. And then on Friday, the 14th of October, inshallah, I go to, to Houston to be with Imam Khalis Rashad and the Ibrahim Islamic Center, people that are really dear to my heart. It's like one of my homes away from home there in Houston. And on that Friday, the 14th, I'm going to do two public events, two events that are open to the public. One will be our weekly Friday worship service, uh, midday. So I'll be doing the sermon and leading the prayer. And that is open to the public. And then that night at the mosque, we'll also do uh, a conversation between me and Imam Khalees. Uh, you can get all that information for all of this stuff on brotherali.com. You can also go to Brother Ali is blind on social media, on uh, Instagram, and get all that good stuff. And I'm just grateful to be out here doing my thing.
And these things that we've been imagining since the pandemic, they're starting to happen. And we're starting to shift the way that we do things. Um, you know, there, there are a lot less steps in between an idea or an inkling or a desire inside my heart as a creative person and me and BK1 as my you know, collaborator, producer, partner, and all of this stuff. The, the, the steps in between having a desire or a vision and it being in the world and happening are a lot fewer. And it's a lot quicker process now. I'm really, really grateful for that. It's a beautiful thing, especially to be this many years in, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like healthy. I'm feeling good. I feel young. I feel energetic. You know what I'm saying? I feel hopeful. And I feel very content in this moment. And that's as good as it gets to be content. I know a lot of people that are much more successful than me that are not that outwardly successful. And I know a lot of people that are struggling on the come up. And that struggle in the come up time is some of the most enjoyable, fun moments that you can't get back. So if you're in that phase, <laughs> enjoy that joint, man. I wish there, I hope there's a way for you to know that the fun you're having right now and the excitement you have and the world of possibilities that's open and the sky being the limit, it's dope. That's an amazing time. And there's a lot of highs and lows that follow it. I'm going to jump into this episode. We have an incredible guest with us, and I'm not going to spend too much time setting it up because as soon as I do jump in with Young Guru, you're going to hear me explain to him the way that I understand him. But Young Guru is a world-class producer and engineer and educator and uh, just really an emblematic figure for the culture of hip-hop. And he's a historical figure in that sense. Young Guru has recorded a lot of amazing artists, but he has recorded exclusively everything that Jay-Z said into a microphone, uh, making music anyway, from 1999 until now. So Jay-Z started his career, you know, officially in, in 1996 with Reasonable Doubt. So there's a period there where he's working with different engineers. But once he meets Young Guru in 1999, He's the one that's going to be recording him from then on. And what you hear in this interview that I'm really trying to talk about and get out and talk and, and elaborate upon and explore with him is that it's not just that he points the microphone at him well. It's not just that he makes his voice sound good. It's not just that he mixes these records well. But it really is the relationship, the brotherhood between these two people, the trust between them, the, the intimacy between them, the artistic expression that exists between them. That's a really, really beautiful thing. So we're going to jump in here with the great Young Guru. I'm so grateful that he came on the show. Young Guru is not somebody that I know extremely well, but we've talked throughout the years. Uh, we've seen each other and run into each other throughout the years. He's been somebody that's been really, really supportive of me, and he's somebody that I really appreciate. I'm just so grateful that a person like this exists in the culture. So we're going to jump in. We're brought to you as always by the Zakat Foundation. We're also brought to you this week by Better Help Online Therapy Platform. Enjoy this episode of the Travelers Podcast. Man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Thank you. I know it's a, I know it's a, a crazy crazy time thank you thank you thank you i want to say that um at the beginning that you know we have this we got this myth 
in in the West in white supremacist cultures uh, of like the self-made great person, the self-made great one. You know, whereas like traditional people know that we do have great ones. Like there's the creator seems to select certain people to be the voice of something and to be the face of something. And that person is absolutely great. But there's never really a great one that doesn't also have a great community and a great, that isn't part of a great chain and a great culture and a great team of people around them. And one of the examples that comes to mind when I think about you, and I've mentioned this to you before, and I think it's especially relevant because of the fact that Jay named his, his child Rumi. And the great poet Rumi, we have all of this work because of the fact that Rumi was like a legal, uh, like he taught Sharia law. Like that's what he did. He was a, a, like a scholar of the outward practice of Islam. What the, what's you know acceptable in Islam and what's not. And he had somebody that came along and basically flipped his whole, his whole understanding. So like Shemps came along and Rumi was well known for being a, a teacher of outward religion. And he basically said like, when is this gonna become real to you though? Like when are you gonna start living this through your heart and teaching it through your heart. And then Shems disappears. Some people say that, they, that he was killed. Some say he left, but he disappears. So now Rumi has to figure out what to do with that. And so he's, he's like bursting with poetry and you know his love for his friend that left and all of these things that are going on inside of him. But the reason that we have all of... so And Rumi never wrote anything down. And he, he would get in these ecstatic states where he would start to just spit these bars. And there's a person named Asamadine Chelebi that wrote all of his stuff down for him, recorded it. He arranged it. He organized it. He made it, uh, you know, so that we could receive it. And then also there are certain parts like, so Rumi's greatest work is the Mesnavi. And Asamadine Chelebi actually is the one that said, like, you need to create like a grand body of work that we can give to people. He encouraged it. He was really almost like a spiritual advisor to Rumi. And it's, there are times where it's like some of these things, people even say that Asamadine's work might, some of his words might actually be in there. And so people thought he was just the scribe, like, oh, he just writes down what Rumi says. But they realized that like that state that Rumi needed to get into to be able to create that work, he could only do that when Asamadine Achelebi is there. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he's actually important to that work. And so the, I think that's so extremely relevant because of the fact that you got, you know, Jay-Z, the, obviously like the creator has chosen him to be this figure to us in, on so many levels. And if you look at him before Big and after Big, he's not the same person. He's not the same artist. You know what I mean? And then also if you look at him before your presence in his life and work and after, it's not the same, you know what I mean? And so for as much as he means to us, those of us that understand culture and, and creativity and art and the way that it actually comes into the world and is able to, to become present in a way where the world can appreciate it and learn from it and be fed by it, it becomes really, really uh, clear what a tremendous figure you are, what you mean to us. And your role in what's been delivered to the world, man. And so, you know, for that, man, I just, I have so much profound love and respect, even before meeting you and before even like getting a sense of who you are, just so much profound love and respect, man. 
I appreciate that. I mean, the way you put that is beautiful. I've never heard it expressed like that. Um, and you actually schooled me. Um, I, that part of Rumi, I did not know, number one. Um, but I, I would humbly say that, you know, I don't know if I can necessarily um, compare myself, you know, <laughs> but but there are, I understand the, the, the liking of it or, or, or putting those two things together. Um, I, I feel as though my expression comes from um, just an understanding of, of hip hop mm-hmm. and an understanding of frequencies and an understanding of um, where you are in time. Um, and, and those things combined, uh, mm-hmm. I think what helps me be that person that you're describing. Um, and of course, I, I love the analogy because of the fact that, you know, without Rumi, you know, this person doesn't get to all the way express themselves. So, you know, with, again, you're starting with Jay, but then my, um, I guess my expression of that comes from the person that is there to, to bounce those ideas off, to uh, ask, you know, are we going in the right direction a lot of time? Um, someone who's obviously listened and understands fully the whole catalog, you know, so that you're not um, repeating yourself or so that you're, uh, your art is going in a, in a new direction. Um, I think that sort of is the talent of what I do, besides just the um, trying forever on the search to master sonics, to master sound. Right. So so it's just beyond um, just the, the thing that we can hear, 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, you know, understanding vibration and understanding that vibration is the foundation of life, like literally, you know, without vibration, you wouldn't have anything, even solids, you know? So vibration um, for me is that thing of harmony. Harmony isn't just the things, you know, the sounds that go together. It's, it's you know, like I said, understanding the human range of where we can hear, which is a beautiful, right. beautiful thing, um, but understanding why it extends on both ends. You know, mm-hmm. you, have, you have kilohertz that go way further in the higher ranges and kilohertz that go way further in the lower ranges, you know, and understanding the, the infinite, possibilities of those and what that brings about. So um, I think that is where my uh, draw to Hazrat Khan and to Sufi teachings comes because it is that, that thing of understanding um, vibration as, mm-hmm. as harmony Definitely. and seeing that vibration, you know, like, like some of his best quotes of if we can see that in a child and understand what that means mm-hmm. um, in harmony. Yeah. So, I think that's that's where it comes from. Um, but also too, just having that uh that understanding of, of hip hop and, and just always being so curious about the music and how it's created and, and from a cultural sense, from yes. a technical sense, um and 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 un- having an understanding of um we have the freedom to sort of do whatever it is that we want. You know, there's something about like the the the, the phrase now, like where we at, Goo. You know what I mean? There's something about that that's like, I mean, obviously we just have this, like, we just have like another testament. Like we just got like another book of Hove in the form of one verse. You know what I mean? That's like, he just never, he never stops giving. You know what I mean? Just when there's no longer the need for him to compete, you know, it seems like he's out of the phase of needing to compete for who's got the number hits and how many summers the record is and all that stuff. Where it's just like, he's more in an Andre 3000 space now where it's like, when I have something that God has given me to tell all of you, then I'll come and deliver it in a way that only the divine can inspire it. But there's something about that. But so, so that's where that phrase comes from is that. But 
there's something like one of the observations I've always had and of you, and I, I'm I'm glad I get to ask you about this, but it it feels to me like, you know, I, and like you said, like you're you're not just the guy pointing the mic at Jay Z, but you're you're something of a of an advisor, and there's like a like the question of like where are we at, Goo? Because so much of what Jay-Z has to do in order to take the message and the music and the culture and these things into the broader conversation require him to step outside the box. He's done so much that nobody's ever done before. Like he's lived outside the box, even though when so if, if like Hove does a B-side concert, that's him doing all of the things that all our favorite rappers do. He can do that for hours. But then when he does the when he does an arena joint, it's like these are all the things that I've done that have shown the world the the black genius and the artistic genius and all of the stuff in this music. But in order to do that, he's got to be in a very uncomfortable zone that most people could never go. And I, I've it's always felt to me like like your presence there, because you're so moored and rooted and grounded. In all of the things that we're talking about, the, the hip hop tradition, the black excellence tradition, the spiritual tradition, it's like, as long as my man is here, I know that I'm not going to be, even if I'm on un uncharted territory, where we at, go like, like I'm always going to be grounded and rooted as long as I can do this in the room with, with my man. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, the one, the where we at, go is, 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 again, double entendre. Mm. Uh, fashion of him saying sort of um when when do I start you know mm -hmm. like where is this like tell, count me it's basically like who count me number one on a, on a very just realistic and, and bottom level but it's also on a level of where we at like what are we about to talk about since we've talked about so many things like what are we what, here's here's where we are now like where, what do we talk about sort of thing and I think that's the double entendre of it but when it comes to those things like the shows and like um what we have to design and having a great understanding of our audience of people who are all the way from 12 years old who their parents may have introduced them to this and maybe their first concert mm -hmm. all the way to people that have you know that are 60 years old that have listened from the very beginning um and, and knowing that we may only have two hours to do something in a live show you have to sort of pick and choose of yeah we're going to do the hits and, and i'm absolutely not someone who shies away from hits because again if you know what we're trying to do with music it is to connect to the most people so it's these are the ones that resonated these are the ones that sent out a vibration that connected with a lot of people but then yeah. there's also um people that have their personal connections you know so there's like a section at the end of the show and it's a funny thing where when we do you know the big arenas and there's a section at the end where it's like okay Google just strip it down just turntables no band me and you and a lot of those times I'll try to be extra prepared and say, okay, I'm going to play. And he's like, don't tell me, just play. And, mm. you know, he wants that part to be spontaneous. And, and you know, he, he'll talk me through it, but he wants it to feel like me and him there. Like, oh, I forgot the, you know, he'll make a joke out of it. But then I don't remember. Or he'll like go put the mic to the crowd and get the first couple words or something mm. like that if he forgets the lyrics. But it's, I just find that interesting where I'm trying to be so prepared. And, he, and that's just a thing he loves. Where he's just like, don't even tell me what you're going to play. Just play it. I trust you that you that you know what we just played in the show. You know which ones people love because I'm one of those people that always gets those conversations of, oh, goo, I needed six songs off a of reasonable doubt, and I'm like, bro, I got to do reasonable doubt, blueprint, blueprint, so, you know, like American mm -hmm. Gangster. Look, I, if, no matter what I play, it would take eight hours for me to play everyone's favorite song. Yeah, man, it's not gonna happen. 
Yeah, those parts of it. And then for me, it's an appreciation thing. It's something where someone um, as great as him has trusted me for all these years. Mm -hmm. So my way of showing gratitude is to say, okay, I understand you have so many businesses and so many things that pull you in so many directions. If I can be super on point with the shows, with the mixing of the albums, with the deliveries of the albums and things like that, it's one less thing that you have to really worry about. You can check that box off. You can sort of give me maybe a 30 second direction that may take me two days, but then you know that I, I'm going to handle it. Um, especially with the show where, you know, very much so the, um, the sequencing of the show is his mind and he'll give it to uh, myself and Omar, who's our musical director. And it's mm -hmm. up to us to, to weave it in together and, um, you know, maybe change a key here and there to get to another song or, you know, those sort of things. And then he'll be able to come to a rehearsal. Most of the rehearsals are three or four days when we're asking him not to come so that we can get the band together so that people can learn songs. If there's new songs, obviously, if they're doing a tour, there's a new album um, and they need to learn those songs. So mm -hmm. again, we're not wasting his time so that when he walks in, he can go, oh, I like that transition. Oh, I don't change it to this, you know. You know? So it's being that vehicle. Um, there's one time where um, I was watching the documentary where uh, Bob Marley uh, and they were doing, uh, what's his name, Chris Blackwell. And someone asked Chris Blackwell, was he his mixer? And Bob was like, no, he's my interpreter. You know, so it's just like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> yes, it's absolutely. That's, it's that, it's that. <laughs> yeah, it's that. I remember I was, the, you know, I was just watching the Chris Rock joint the other day and it made me think about you. He said, you know, sometimes you're the front man, sometimes you're on tambourine. He's yeah. like, man, it's hauling oats. I don't know what else does, but Hall never had a hit without him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, there, there's like that thing of the presence. I want to ask, I'm, I'm going to get back to this, this, this meaning thing, but I selfishly am going to ask you a technical question with the show. So, so oftentimes, you know, we have these songs, especially the older joints where people are pitching a, the sample, like the original record is in key. And then we get it on an MPC or something like that. And we're, we're, you know, nudging it just a little bit. And so it's no longer in any particular key. Then when you bring in musicians to try to play along with that, either they have to tune or you have to go in in the, in the session and like tune the sample. Do you too? I'm assuming you tune the sample when you do that. I absolutely tune the sample. So when, you know, again, having an understanding of our production style. So if the song is in one key, and you either speed it up or you manipulate it. It it, it will be in another key. Um, you just have to figure out what. And that between is. keys, it's not even in like a locked in two way key. Yeah, that's that's the story I was going to get to. That a lot mm. of times the, the the artists when they're or the producer when they're doing this, they may just put it on plus five or plus eight on a turntable, not thinking of key, and it may end up falling in between keys. So you know, from it's it's much easier for me to tune it either like whatever is closer to it, I need to tune it up or tune it down just so that the band is not keep tuning their instruments. It's easier for me just to tune the sample and then they can play. And then sometimes it's really weird. There's some stuff on Reason of the Doubt where we're just so blessed to have the tools that we have where I actually had to put it in um, Melodyne. And now Melodyne has the ability to tune, like say some of the bottom, the, 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 the pianos were off. So yeah. it's like if I put the pianos in tune, then the bass is going to be off. And then it was like, well, it was easier for me to tune the pianos to the right thing and then tune the bass, you know, just by itself. And, and we have these, these wonderful tools now where I can do that. Um, 
But yeah, to answer your question directly, I always tune the sample so that the uh, it's much easier for the band. And plus, people have rehearsed so long, you know, in their lives, um, and taking their instruments off tune would, would sort of mess that mess their ear up a little bit. So I like to tune the sample. Yeah, it's crazy whenever you have those experiences with a band that have been trained in such a way. You know what I mean? That like, and then also so many of the older joints, especially like, you, you know, people are mixing samples that are not necessarily in key with each other. You know what I mean? But the, but there's a beauty in it that a trained musician might not understand, that a hip hop here, ear understands. They're like, no, these things are right. I know they're not right in the way that you've been trained, but they're actually right. And that's really from a jazz aesthetic. You know what I mean? Like that's so much of what, of what jazz really brought into the, at least in the, in the modern context. That like man. Well, again, you um, you have to deal with the science and, and again understanding and studying that when you're talking about keys, or most of the time we're talking about a Western scale. Mm-hmm. So we come up with these um these interesting words, and it's still based off a Western scale where we say microtones, and all yeah. microtones is is for that person who's been trained in a Western scale right. to be able to understand notes that fall in between the cracks on the piano. It's all it's exactly what you're talking about. Um, the, the greatest example I can give you of that of popular music is Bollywood and Indian music, right? So it's that those sort of scales fall in between um, the notes that we've chosen because we basically said, okay, A is 440. Mm-hmm. Again, that's a, that's sort of a preset. And we and we say, we're going to go up a half step, a half step, and we have 12 of those. And that's what creates, you know, that full range. And then we repeat that a bunch of times. So understanding that there are other scales or there are tonal things that come culturally from people all around the world that may not be producing a pure tone. It may right. be producing two tones at once. Um, obviously, we, we think of like click language where you're actually saying vowel sounds and clicks at the same time, and mm-hmm. that is part of the communication. So um, for me, it's interesting. Like That is one of the only times where my guitar player has to literally put down his, he's playing you know, big pimping because that's in um, uh, uh, an Indian scale. Then we'll have to put his, his westernized scale of guitar down and pick up the one that's been tuned specifically for that song. So it's it's very wow. interesting. So he so so he you got a tech that's that's tuning a joint just for big pimping. Yeah, yeah crazy. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and I, there's some really um, amazing things that I've seen done where now there's um, a piece of equipment that I saw at a kid from Georgia Tech. He actually won um, the contest, but there was a, a contest, and all he did was create um, these things that slide up and down the fret. And if you put them in a certain position, it will yeah. change tuning of the guitar on the fly. It was, it was a really interesting concept. So there, so I, I worked with, um, there's a guitar player who passed away, but he's from Philly. His name is Jeffrey Johnson. He worked with, uh, he worked a, a lot with Amir, with Questlove and the Soul Aquarian. So he played, he's the guy that played the crank guitar on the the first, the beginning of Mama's Gun. And I think he might've even played the on the Erica version. He played on Like Water for Chocolate, all that stuff. He played on one of my records and he came in and this is 2007. So we didn't have all that technology fully. Like we didn't, right. we weren't locked in with it yet. So we weren't quite sure how to tune. And it, my whole record, he played guitar on my whole record. And it was made on an ASR of all things. So it's just like, man, this is, we're not stretching this. There's none of that happening. And so he came in and I was like, he ran through the, all the songs I wanted him to play in, in almost one take. And some of them I'm like, I think this is a little out of tune. Without retuning his guitar, he could just hold his finger in the fret 
yeah. in a way that would just make it on tune. And he's like, bro, I grew up in Philly. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I grew up playing broken guitars and like secondhand guitars. Like, I found my first guitar in the, in the alley. You yeah. know what I mean? I, you don't have to retune between songs. Like, because, you know, the, like a broken guitar loses tunes. It can't hold the tune. Like, the thing is not strong enough. So, man, you get certain people that can even bend the tune without having, the, just with their finger in their ear, you know? Amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing um, what you see necessity create. You know, mm -hmm. and that that whole axiom is very true. Um, that necessity is the mother of invention. And then when people are used to it, um, it's it's like uh, me when starting out. You know, on on belt drives and you know turntables and being right. people with mother and dryers. You know, I mean, mother, <laughs> mother and father's washer and dryer in the basement. Right. It's like. When you get to the club with the Technique 1200s and a full set, it's like you're so comfortable because you've been in the worst situation already. But mm -hmm. you could deal with that situation if it, if it arises. So, you know, again, we are creative people and we got to understand that um, music is just an expression and, and there are no rules. Really. It's just what sounds good and what gives a lot of good vibration. On the Travelers Podcast, our day one supporters and collaborators and visionaries have been Zakat Foundation, and we're really grateful for that. Zakat, Z-A-K-A-T, is the pillar of Islam that deals with giving back, with charitable giving, with purifying our ambition, purifying our material resources by giving back. We really want to, it's really our goal, it's really our aim and objective that all of the money that we make and the money that we sustain ourselves with and feed our families with, we want all of that money to come from sources that we feel good about. We don't want to contribute to the corruption in the world. We don't want to participate in that. But the world is such, and business is such, and money is such, that it gets mixed up. It, there are areas where it gets gray, it gets tricky, it gets complicated. And so one of the ways that we're commanded in the Quran to combat that and to purify that mixing of money. You know, they say not all money is good money. And so we want to take every opportunity we can to give back, to contribute to human beings that are in need, and to help elevate their life to one that's befitting of a human being. And Zakat Foundation operates all over the world doing just that. It's a Muslim-led organization, but they don't only help Muslims. They don't use their work to proselytize or to try to convert people. They go into a part, to, to all the areas that they, that they work, with the reality and the understanding that the people that are experiencing this trouble, they're the experts. We're here to support them. That's the best that we're going to do. A lot of times a big corporation will come in with millions of dollars with this attitude that like, well, we got this money because we know better than you. And you're in trouble because you don't know what you're doing. And a lot of times they come in and they don't understand the dynamics. They don't know the nuances. They don't know all of the the different layers of what's going on in the area. They throw money at a certain part of the problem and they end up exacerbating another part. And so they make things worse for as well-intentioned as they might be. Sakat Foundation takes every, uh, makes every effort to go in and work with the people that are there. Also, they're very creative. 
You know, so for example, they have an orphan relief program that operates around the world. And they came into this, this industrial complex of helping orphans that says, we show you pictures of orphans around the world and that tugs at your heartstrings and you fall in love with this child in their face and you want to help them. And that encourages people to give. And that's true. But also what Zakat Foundation realized is that, I mean, the, this, this, in internalized white supremacy, these white standards of beauty, this anti-blackness is a global reality. It's a global phenomenon. And so they had the idea, like, let's just look statistically and see who's getting helped the first and most often if people get to look at pictures. And it was younger, lighter skinned girls, whereas older, darker skinned boys were not being chosen. And so they changed all that. They said, we're not going to show you pictures. It's not a dating app. This isn't Tinder. You don't swipe left and right on children that are in need. We ask you, the default setting is, before you see pictures, do you want to help the child that's most in need? Well, you could choose that, or you could choose a specific part of the globe. So if you want to help people in Somalia, you can. If you want to help people in Palestine, you can. If you want to help orphans in a certain area, you can do that. But they saw just by changing that, that once people had that opportunity to, to see it that way, to frame it that way, they said, oh, let me help the person that needs it the most. And then they started seeing it become more equitable overnight. When you donate to their program to, to help orphans, 100% of that donation goes directly to children and their families. They don't use it to pay salaries. There's no overhead. They're not using that to advertise. They're not using that for the Travelers Podcast to support us. So... Head to zakatfoundation.org or follow them on social media at zakatus. Look at the work that they do. Find a way to jump in. This is incredible work done by people that are approaching it from a human perspective, from a from a creative perspective, and it's incredible work. And we're really, really fortunate. We're very blessed. We're very grateful to be rocking with Zakat Foundation. Cultures oftentimes have a progression where something starts as a microculture. So you have hip hop starting in the Bronx. And then by the time Brooklyn starts getting involved, and I know there are people in Brooklyn that are like, no, Grandmaster Flowers, we had hip hop too. But, I just had so, that discussion the other day with the guys who actually did family pop. So. It's, it's dangerous, man. There's so many dangerous, like so many dangerous conversations in hip hop right now. You bring up Puerto Ricans, it's like you might have to fight somebody. You know what I'm saying? If you bring up, uh, you know, and the the thing that LL just did with academics, I thought that was really beautiful. Like there's there's a lot of like there's a lot of like really cantankerous conversations in the in the culture. But I mean, so you you know, so by the time it reaches, for example, like um, Chuck D in Long Island. You know what I mean? And Rakim and like the people that live in Long Island. And then by the time it reaches different places or even just like those tapes, the tapes of the original recordings of Kaz and Bam and people like that, that reach the people in New Jersey. And then they they are the ones that are able to put it on a record and make rappers delight. You know what I mean? Having that thought. I wonder how much of you growing up in Delaware, you know, your father's from, from DC, mother's from Newark. So you're spending time in those places as well. But so you're kind of like in the shadow of Philly to a certain degree in, in Delaware. But so you're you're very connected. It's not that you're disconnected. It's not like it was very different from us being in Minneapolis. But, you know, so you're close, but also you're able to see things that the eye, one of the things Rumi said is the eye sees everything, but the eye can't see itself. We need reflections in order to understand what we are. 
You know what I'm saying? And so like the culture needs almost uh, for somebody to observe it and to participate in that way. And I wonder with you being, you know, close, but being down the road a little bit, I wonder how that shaped your your view of the culture and the art form. It's a very interesting thing. One, we are um, like a, almost like a suburb of Philly um, mm -hmm. because it's really like from, from downtown to my mother's house in Delaware. We could drive 20 minutes, 25 minutes at you know, maximum, number one. Um, and then with my parents being from D.C. and from Jersey, when I go to Jersey, um, here in New York radio. So it was um, hearing the radio, the tapes obviously floated over the bridge. And in D.C., obviously, it was the confusion of the go -go, you know, along with funk and things of that nature. But I think one of the interesting things, um, I think Bob said this best, is that when you live in a rural place, you understand putting your hand in the dirt and waiting six months and getting a result. So your, your, the worth of the things that you do comes from work how much work you do. Um, you have a front yard, you have a backyard, even the projects have a front yard, and your own front yard and backyard. Um, it's very natural for you to, if you don't have money, um, go in the morning and get the chicken necks from the back of the supermarket and then go crabbing or go fishing and actually, you know, again, put your, that's what I mean mm. by put your hand there, whether or not that's planting food, whether or not that's fishing, um, farming. You know, it's very normal for me growing up, um, cows being around and horses and things of that nature versus growing up in a city life. The only thing that separates you is money. So it's just mm -hmm. like whoever has a better life. Right, 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 right. So the whole the whole mentality becomes get money. Mm -hmm. or I grew up in a project building and, and there's, you know, um, let's say 10 units on every floor. And it's a 13 floor project. And then that's just my building. And then there's 10 buildings that make up this property. Like there's so many people and so little land that you don't get to really put your hands in the dirt. And the, again, the only thing you see that will that will get you where you want to go with money. So that mentality of just get money, get money, get money now is different when you come from sort of a more rural area. So I think Delaware was just the perfect blend of those two. Because Wilmington is city, but you know, you drive 10, 15 minutes and you're in a rural area, you're around, you know, and let alone if you drive like 20 minutes or a half an hour, you know, you're, you're, you're at a beach, you're um, smelling horseshoe crabs in the morning, you know, regardless of where you live. Um, being, like I said, being around livestock is very normal to you. So you, you sort of have that reverence for when I'm eating a piece of chicken, you know, that this thing was alive and someone had to kill this and prepare this, you know, whether or not that's fish, you know, whatever it is, this this thing was alive. So you sort of have that sort of reverence for life. Mm -hmm. Walk a little bit more in a rural area. Um, that and then uh, that's the one thing that we, again, if you grow up in a city environment, it's a lot easier for you to say, oh, this thing broke. Let me just give it to this person to fix it. Where in the rural environment, you're grabbing tools and you're learning how to fix something because the place where you have to take it to get fixed is so far away that you'll miss the whole day. If you sit there and go, somebody else has to fix this. So that's, that's what sort of led me to um, engineering as well. But I think that's the biggest difference is it's not this immediate. Um, I got to get money, you know, get money, get money. Right. That's the only thing. It's just like, no, I have to work hard and I have to wait. And, and it's going to take six months for mm -hmm. this thing to grow out of the ground. And then I'll reap the benefits of it. You know, that mentality. So I think that's what the only difference is for me, other than um, 
just having that blessing of, of again, being able to do a radio very early in New York City, um, getting those early, early tapes of, you know, the classic battles um, before there were records, you know, all the crews that were out and then seeing a different sort of representation of that in D.C. Um, because both of them are uh, interacting with the crowd, but in D.C. it's very much more of the call and response. In hip-hop, it's, it's, it's say my verse, then inside of that, I have call and response. Then there's a routine. Then there's call and response. In Google, there's way more call and response and personalization yeah. of names of who's in the audience from uh-huh. um, the MC. So it, it was, it was, you know, watching those things and then also seeing um, young black individuals in DC who actually learned how to play instruments. So Gogo is very much a live, um, a, a live situation. So it wasn't the stigma of learning an instrument. If it was all young black men, regardless if it was on buckets, if it was on whatever, like like you said earlier, broken guitars, any of those things, um, you had to learn in order to be in the band. You had to learn how to play some sort of instrument. So mm-hmm. that was another, you know, just blessing of, of growing up and visiting these places just repeatedly, um, visiting my grandparents. You know, so much of like when we talk about this, this um, so oftentimes that these marriage, these like musical marriages, it's like two two people that bring different parts of the of the of the spectrum together, things that seem like they're not reconcilable. And you know, when I, when I what I was thinking about when you were talking about just the difference in, you know, really city life and rural life, I also think about Jay Z and his story. Like Hove is somebody who was so individual for his whole life. It feels like. Mm-hmm. You know, that was just like me against this project. It's me against whatever's going on in this intergenerational stuff in my family. It's me against my brother. Like it's me against, you know, the world. And I've got to, I've got, you know, whereas it, you really feel like someone and what I know about your story that you really have been grown in communities. Oh, absolutely. Your whole life. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I didn't realize that until, mm-hmm. um, I realized it early, but I'm saying the contemplation of how incredible it was of what my parents did really came to me when I slowed down during COVID uh, and just had that thought of, of, you know, it was amazing to me um, watching my parents because of the fact that them coming to college together and imagining people that are in college, you know, some people will graduate, you'll never see those people again. Um, You know, it might have been just an error in your life. But my parents actually were in a, a group of people who decided to move within a five block radius of each other. There wasn't my guy moms and, and the men that raised me, they all went to school with my parents and it was literally, you know, walk a half a block down and it was this person's uh, house and then walk another half a block down this way and it was another person's house um, that were all friends. So naturally their children are going to be around each other. I have childhood friends that I've never met. And, and I know that sounds funny, but it was like my mother and your mother put us down to sleep in a crib at the same time. You know, I never met them on a basketball court or a football field or any, they were just always there, almost like a, a family member. So mm-hmm. building that community, me learning to play chess from, you know, the lady's husband um, that does my mom's hair or, or all those different sort of things were because of that type of community. So I've always known, you know, um, the mayor of my city. I've always known the city council. Um, I've always known those people as well because they come from that same community and they, they know my parents intensely. I mean, there's a part of it 
that as a kid you you know you don't like because it's like you can't do anything wrong because this person is going to catch you and beat right. you and take you to your mother and tell <laughs> you <laughs> what you did. And then by the time you get home, she already knows. But that's part of the that's part of the community. That's part of what it is. Even to a certain degree, um, if you're talking about illegal life back then, you know, there was a different type of hustler. He was trying to be very quiet. He was very nice to older people. You know, it wasn't this thing of of, of this uh, super testosterone and pull out a gun thing. It was, I'm trying to take care of the whole community, even though he was doing illegal things. I'm just Mm -hmm. pointing out that's how ingrained community was. You didn't do anything Mm -hmm. around kids or women. You helped the older ladies. You know, those things, you you told the the people that had nothing to do with any of it to get out of here because something's about to happen. Like Those sort of things were going on in the community. And that's that's a direct reflect of um, the way my parents just put that whole thing together. Somebody asked me before, like, did it have a name? And I was like, no, nah, just what they did um, because of the fact that they were all friends and just helping each other. So naturally, you know, you start to build those those things that um, that everyone else has seemed to figure out of, of how to build that community and keep that community. It's just a way of being. Your father's, one of your father's closest friends was the head of Parks and Rec in yes. your city. And you became the DJ of the Parks and Rec parties at like 12, 13 years old, right? Yeah, absolutely. He, he, I consider him like my second father, um, Mr. Sheehy. Um, just grew up with him always being there. Um, I can remember just going over to his house and, and barbecues every other weekend. You know, sometimes they didn't have any money. So it's, you know, this is when we wasn't eating, right? A little bologna might just be on the grill. But it was like, it was, it was about that. It was the grill. It was, you know, them buying beers and playing pinochle and, and you know, letting us have our music till about like six, seven o'clock at night. And they used, they used to laugh and be like, you know, you got a half hour left and then it's going to be hour. You know, <laughs> it was that sort of thing. Um, we would get up as kids and go crabbing. And, mm. I, you know, if we're out there at like 6, 30, 7 in the morning, by like 9, 10 o'clock, we got two bushels full of crabs. Um, we bring mm. that home. You know, we put that on the grill. We steam those. So it was that that was what it was. It was, it was going to barbecue and, and those men teaching me how to play basketball. Um, and they were still in a league. Uh, it was a spot called West Center City um, in Wilmington. Um, but they still played basketball together. So all of those things. But he was like my second father. And, and yes, he, he ran Park and Recreation. So prior even to me um, doing those things, he was like, okay, well, you're coming to get a job as a, uh, as a locker team at one of the mm-hmm. pools. So, you know, during the summertime, then when you, then when you get of age, he's going, okay, well, they're having certification down at Brown's boys club for lifeguards, you know, lifeguards back then was, was making like 12, $15 an hour in the eighties. So it's just like, okay, go get the certification. You're going to become a lifeguard. Now you have a job, not only a job in the summertime, if you wanted to, you could do a hotel in the wintertime and just watch the pool. Then mm-hmm. he also, you know, monumental in terms of you, you get into the to, to the hip hop thing, the DJ thing. Okay, great. The whole point was the violence was getting so crazy that they wanted to have these, you know, midnight basketball games, and that was sort of his idea of if I could have the whole project or the whole community in one spot, it's easier to police, it's easier to give people something to do, it's easier to sort of um, make an alternative for that time, that exact time period when the violence is spiking. So it, it was just super intelligent, and then him allowing me to be part of, of the DJs that were out there, it, it not only, of course, musically, it, it puts you in a space where you got to learn parties, you got to learn um, people, 
and and what record to play and how to control the crowd through music. Um, but it also gives you a place to be at that time when maybe at that age you're, you're awkward in the party. You don't know where to stand. You don't know how to go up and talk to a girl. Like I never had that mm-hmm. position because I, I was always behind the rope and I was always DJing. So that that thing of being comfortable having a position allows you to meet everybody else. The MC has to come over to me to get the microphone in order for him to become whoever he wants to be in front of the crowd. So those those sort of um, things are all built off of community because without him, I would have never been in that position. One of the things that I've heard you say is that you were raised by revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious about, you know, and we've talked a little bit about like the different things that we've read and it's a lot of the same, you know what I mean? It's like a lot of the same stuff. But I'm curious, there's a there's a phrase that I've heard that says that, and this is, you know, this is a little bit of my own stuff in here that, that I'm curious, makes me curious about this, but I've heard it said that Islam is the unofficial religion of hip hop music. Mm-hmm. And, and I see that even carried out through Jay and through, you know, uh, through Jay Electronica and, you know, like the, these, these, these themes. And we know that black Islam in particular is a spectrum. It's not a monolith. Like there's a lot of different expressions, you know, so here in Jay talk so much about the 5% nation of gods and earths mm-hmm. and the nation of Islam and also Sufism and things like that. Um, can you reflect and just kind of take me through like, what's been your uh, relationship with Islam vis-a-vis Hip hop and black empowerment. Right. Any reflections or meditations you have on it? Amazing question that no one's ever asked before. So obviously, um, growing up, my mother was um, a devoted Christian still to this day. Right. So you grow up in the black church and you get that experience. You get the music. You get the preaching. Um, you see people, you know, talking in tongues, and you see all these different things. So then, when you get of an age of understanding and you start to question these things, it just so happened that the music was starting to do that at the exact same time. Right, right, right. You're, you know, um, I'm born in 74, so 88, 89, when you're 14, 15 years old and Poor Righteous Teacher comes out with an album and it says, take off your cross because it's crossing up your mental, you know, um, you know, and, and, and the gods is definitely just strong, you know, not just only Rakim. I mean, obviously that was our first sort of, um, I don't want to say introduction to it, but it was the first time where we had it as a superstar, like the, the hip hop superstar is now claiming um, the gods. So, you know, you start to see those things in his dress and the way that he's talking and the fact that he doesn't curse that much in his demeanor and things of that nature. And then you're also um, building with the gods literally on the street. So you start mm-hmm. to question all these different things. And, and, and um, you know, it's like those sort of things sort of influence you as a kid, when you're questioning the world and questioning religion and trying to figure out who you want to be and where, you know, where you want to go. So then on my Jersey side, it's like me being young, um, my cousins knew a lot of the people that would end up being the flavor. So, mm. you know, my, my cousin Tariq didn't call Latifa Latifa. He called him. He was just like, oh, Dana that used to play basketball. She got a record. You know what I mean? My cousin would say something like that. Mm. So obviously in that crew, you're going to look at a Lakem Shabazz. And Shaquem yeah. Shabazz is going to be that yes. sort of um, thing that leads you down that path. And Shaquem. Yeah. And, and obviously him too as well. So it was just like those those um, things through hip hop mm-hmm. sort of got you even interested or saying, what is this? Or or let me go find out what they're talking about. Or, or Rakim, you know, just to go back, says, got you out of triple stage of darkness. You're like, what, what is triple stage of dark? Because you're listening to MCs and you're trying to decipher what they mean 
you know, right. I was one of those people that was like, I understand De La Soul, even though it's coded language, I get it. So mm. when Rakim says that, it's just like, what? Like, what are you talking? And that's what leads you down that road. Because um, that's directly from the Quran. Like now you're in the Quran. Yeah. There's no other, that's where it takes you. Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing. So, I mean, so how have you seen that progression? Because it felt like, you know, so as a, like, I, I embraced Islam and became an imam and all this stuff, like because of, because of hip hop. And it felt like, you know, like we were thoroughly in the, in, in, in charge for a long time. And then it feels like it went away for a minute. And, um, you know, in, in terms of like the overt expression, J Electronica and to a large degree, Hove have been so, uh, you know, they they really have represented it for us again, like really strongly, you know, and I, I've been around Jay Electronica, uh, not not Jay-Z, but like, what is that? What's the what's the feeling or the or the atmosphere or the vibe with regard to that understanding of life within the within those creative spaces, within the business space? Like, how is that informing this particular expression within the culture now? With Jay Electronica, it's fun um, and interesting to watch because he, to me, is the Bob Marley equivalent of that in music. He's the Bob Marley of of, of the Nation of Islam. Yeah, his sole purpose is that with the music. So right. you've been around him, you know him. I love the brother, man. I love him. And that's that's what I mean, where his his whole purpose is going to be that the way Bob, you can still get um, love, rude boy, revolutionary, um, you know, uh, religious, all in the same song. I think mm -hmm. Jay is the same way where he knows his purpose and his purpose is not the average, uh, I need to release an album on your time or I need to follow these rules for it to be a number one seller. I don't think he's, you know, this is my opinion of, of being around him a lot. I think he's more concerned with his message than what he gets out. So that um, is the thing with Jay Alec that drives it, is that or makes him different, is that it's, it's the crux, it's the center, it's always going to be there. I don't think he will make music that doesn't have that as the center. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and then you see, you see, you know, his expression, what it is. With, with Jay, um, it's a lot more alluding to things. And it's a lot more of, um, I think Jay gave us a little bit more of the actual search. And, you know, he opened up a little bit on 444 where he was talking about, you know, a family member and an uncle or preachers or, or things of that nature of looking at them and then saying, okay, then I went out and searched for all these different things, or right. then um, you know, doing your expression very um, quietly, where I don't have to say certain things, but then you'll see me at a Nick game, um, you know, repping the flag. So you know that those sort of things are, are what I think that drives the expression and, and to make it normal and to make it, you know, I don't know if it was necessarily the time period, but it was just like those eighty-nine, you know, ninety time periods of when it was super, super strong. Yeah. Um, I think changed as people changed. And when and when money, you know, a, a larger amount of money came into it, then it became a different thing. But yeah. that that was very normal, you know, for for any any act. And you know, we're naming the major ones like a poor righteous teachers or um like those, but you know, there's there's so many of the guys that have repped all throughout hip hop that is sort of, it's just like, like you said, it becomes a de facto, you know, for, for us as hip hop, whether or not that's brand newbie and whether or not that's, you know. Um, I mean, Ice Cube. You yeah, know. I could just go down the line. I mean, I thought like that, that photo on the back of Death Certificate with Ice Cube reading the final call and you got all of the G's on one side and then you got the FOI on the other side. You know what I mean? And bringing the worlds together. 
Yeah. It's the perfect, the perfect balance. Or, or you could look at, you know, just the different expressions uh, where, where Public Enemy might have been a little bit more um, uh, Black Panther and, and, and um, with that ideology. And then you look on the West Coast and you have, um, even in gangster music, you know, it's still representations of, of the, the movie that Bone put out called Bastards of the Party, mm-hmm. where it's just like what happens when you do come in and you kill off all the Black Panthers on the West Coast, what do you think their kids are going to do or who do you think they're going to be when they've already seen their elders standing in front of the police with guns, challenging the police, guns being legal in California, then it's naturally going to lead you to that thing of bastards of the party. So I yeah. thought I thought that that um, was, was just perfectly titled because it's just like you're putting a whole generation out there without fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and even still, you start to see where the conscience is pulled from comes from Islam. So you have all of this, all of this uh, cultivation going on in your life, but I heard you say one time, but I've never heard you talk about it too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, that did you go to a all white boys Catholic school at some point? Absolutely. Um, it was an interesting situation because they wanted me to play basketball. I was the best education um, in the city, and it. The funny thing is that I was never um, confrontational. Because mm-hmm. I didn't want to sit there and yell and be like, oh, the thing that you're doing is wrong and this is wrong and that's wrong. Um, but I would express myself. So <laughs> freshman year, when you know you're required in the school to take religion all four years, mm-hmm. by the third week of school, freshman year, they told me that I, that I already had I didn't have to go to religion. <laughs> so I don't know, I don't know if that was legal. I don't know if they were supposed to do that, but obviously they saw if he stays in this class, it's gonna be a threat to the thought because uh, you're Malcolm in the prison, it, you know what I'm saying? In that in the in the prison scene where Malcolm is talking to the what color were the original Hebrews? Oh, very interesting. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. well, you, well, you simply you simply ask, you know, very basic questions of like, okay, we'll turn to this particular scripture where it's describing a bronze man and hair of wool. And I'm like, okay, well, who in here has hair of wool and who's bronze? So mm-hmm. those sort of things, or already having knowledge of, of the Council of Nicaea and questioning those things about the changing um, of, of the particular text. Um, mm-hmm. You know, stuff that people just wouldn't know or asking very basic, natural questions of, um, do you take this book literally? Um, right. you, start, you started time old, you know, because we know how old the earth is and then it can't be 2,000 years. Or if, if there's just an Adam and an Eve, well then, um, we have Adam, we have Eve, and then we have their two sons, and we have these famous stories about them. If if they are the only people on earth, who did Cain and Abel have sex with to produce children? Mm-hmm. You, you understand these questions? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. as a freshman, I'm asking these questions because we've already been in it and, and been given this information and this knowledge. So they just basically allowed me to not go to religion class. It was, it was funny. <laughs> it was just like, you're good. I think uh I think you know everything you need to know about this stuff. Yeah, but I wasn't I wasn't being disrespectful. So sometimes there's a um, thing of, of when you're conf- confronting someone else's thing, um, there's this argument that naturally happens because one person thinks one way and one person thinks another way. Mm-hmm. I can respect how you think. It just doesn't make complete sense to me. But I wasn't, con- I'm, I'm not trying to convert you. And I think some people expect it to be confrontational. And I absolutely wasn't, which is the reason why they allowed it. So were you there for all of high school? Yeah, all four years. It was mainly it was mainly because it was the best education um, mm-hmm. in basketball. So you went directly from there to Howard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was how did what did that feel like? 
We're talking about Howard, 1992. Like that's a major, that's a major period in at, at Harvard in particular. Or sorry, at Howard, sorry. Absolutely. So my my guidance counselor didn't even look for it. Was either like you're going to play basketball and you already get a full ride and full scholarships. And I turned all these basketball scholarships down to go to Howard. My um mm-hmm. my older cousin was there. Uh, she's three years older than me. So she invited me to homecoming my senior year. And then just seeing the homecoming, I was like, there's absolutely no other place I could go. So mm-hmm. it's not, and, and you know, of course, it's beautiful women, but not just for women, but just the environment, the culture, what was going on. Um, just meeting people in that weekend, I was like, I got to go to school here. So in 92, when I got there, uh, you got to remember Roz Baraka, who's- Amir Baraka's um, son, yeah. And he's, a, he's also a poet MC as well. Yeah, poet MC and also the mayor of North right now. Um, his younger brother, mm-hmm. uh, Mitty, who's named after his father, Mary Baraka Jr., um, became one of my good friends and was also an MC. So the mm-hmm. reason that I met him was through mm-hmm. winning uh, this DJ competition uh, for the hip hop conference. And he stepped to me and wanted me to be down with his crew. So again, you know, here, here comes another revolutionary sort of spirit or, you know, angle or just, you know, you're, go- you're going to attract sort of the same thing, the same mindsets. Um, but being there in 92 was tremendous. It was, it was, you know, Puff hadn't started Bad Boy yet. Um, it's just a bunch of people trying to get on in the music business or, you know, and not just music business. We had people that were just going to school to be a dentist and, and they became that. We had one of the top opera singers in, um, that would later become one of the top black opera singers was in our fine arts. Um, the gentleman who played, um, Elijah Muhammad in the Malcolm X movie. Oh, where? Yeah, he was my blacks in the arts teacher. You know, he was a te- he was a professor at Howard uh, while all this was going on. Um, Mr. Mercer, you know, was was one of the greatest lawyers uh, for entertainment, and he was the one that took us through and, and was one of those that would like try to make the class interesting to us. So, you know, as soon as I take an entertainment law class, he studied. We're studying the Biz Markie case about sample wow, because obviously man. a little bit it was a little bit newer then. So right. he's trying. Yeah, he's trying to educate us, but but I mean, actually getting all the, you know, like a lawyer would do, you get all the papers and you study the whole case. And so you're super interested. So you're taking the test the same way a lawyer would, but it's on the Bismarcky case. Right. So it's relevant to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that, that's what the environment was. And then a bunch of people giving you the attitude of um, there's no way that we, that we can't do something. So I always say, like, our students are trained that if you come to a wall, you know, you want to be like, okay, how tall is the wall? How long is it that way, that way? Go call five people, get some shovels. We're going to dig. Maybe we could go under the wall. We're going to get over the wall. If that don't work, go get the dynamite. We're going to bust the wall. But somehow we're getting through this wall. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of people. So, so meaning, and I wish I had a better understanding. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, But I wish I had a better understanding then that we had all the pieces that we needed we just didn't have the maturity or the education of how to actually put it together. Meaning um, the triple five soul clothing line, I mean, not triple five, so our tribe vibe uh, clothing line that you see mm. Tupac, I get around video, you right. know, being produced by a Howard student who's literally getting up with a stand and selling his wares as the freshman um, girls walk to the freshman guy's dorm. He strategically placed his stand there or, um, the amount of people that did everything. So we had guys that did clothes that, you know, obviously graffiti artists and graphic people that were doing our flyers, you mm. know, countless DJs and MCs and just all of that was all together as a crew. So that sort of thing and, and the, the spirit of it, of, of seeing that dynamic 
of that many young black people just moving and shaking and, and, and then having success at it. And it wasn't just Puff, it was people, you know, um, just, just moving into all these different expressions. Uh, it, it was nothing for one of your friends to be like, hey, I just got a job at this new urban line called a Nietzsche or this new urban line called this or this, or I know the person that works there because they're my friend or, you know, and, it, and this is a representation of all 50 states doing mm-hmm. it. And so you're and you're making beats and like trying to DJ for all 50 states too. That was a huge um, change as well because of the fact that, but prior to that, my whole DJing experience is either going to be Delaware, Philly, North New Jersey, or Washington D.C. So I know what those people like. So going to Howard and and what I'm about to say is, is another level of it because when you got requests to play music that was from the West Coast or from Texas or from um, you know, uh, wherever Jamaica, these, these were your friends. These weren't just random people coming up to you in the club, trying to make a request. These are people you sat in class with people that have helped you women that have typed your paper for you. Like, so you're not going to like, get out of here. You're going to like, try to figure out what these people like, and you got to service all those people in sort of a like four to five hour period. If you figure back then you weren't doing celebrity DJ night. So you literally had to, again, had to DJ from 10 o'clock to, you know, three in the morning or four in the morning. So that that was another interesting thing of learning different music that that wasn't innate to you, um, especially with like people from the down, like getting getting a lot of, um, I knew the, the popular down south records or the Texas records, but getting people really, really going in and showing you who was the foundation on their end. Um, you know, I remember people from the Bay asking for E-40 and all I knew was like sprinkle me. And I was like, E-40, like, you know, like, but then you get this whole education and then it's like, nah, it ain't just E-40, it's Mac Dre, it's this, it's this, it's that. So mm-hmm. uh, that education came through friends and through, and through trying to DJ at Howard for all the different people. And, and I understand um, back then, I, I will admit it, East Coast was a little arrogant in terms of we set the styles and everybody has to follow us and that sort of thing and you start to see people whose style is different i'm used to dc being different because dc's always been on its own thing because of global culture but you start to see different slang different ways of dressing that other people think is fresh and they're looking at certain things that you do like people on campus looking at tim's like they're weird and and, you know i mean with the way people now it's very natural for you to be like online and hear people outside of new york make fun of new york like y'all never gonna do with these tim's and it was right, just like, right. back then, you know, it was a shock for somebody like, why do y'all wear them so much? Or like, it was, it was that interaction, but still, you know, not in a, in a confrontational way. It was just people had different styles. It's amazing. Just like all of the preparation, man. Like if it, like, cause I'm still thinking about all this is like, this is what goes into, you know, creating the human being and the spirit and the mind and the, the human being that's going to be able to be with, you know, and, and, and really accompany Hove on the journey that he has to go on. You yeah. know what I mean? The way that you've been able to be, you know, fed literally and, and figuratively by so many different um, elements of life. And then to go into a white school and to experience what that is and to understand how, what makes them respond and react and how to speak to them and how to, you know, how to, how to disagree with them, how to differ with them, how to hold your own with them. Just the levels of preparedness. It, it really feels like everything I know about your life feels like training for, for bringing together these different influences and, and cultures. And it's amazing.
The Travelers Podcast is sponsored this week by BetterHelp, and we receive a commission when you use our link to sign up with them. BetterHelp is an online therapy platform, and it really exists because there are so many of us that are ready to do therapy. We've gotten past the stigma that being in therapy means something is wrong with you. In my mind, the reality is that we live in these really unnatural settings. We're not close with our families. A lot of times we're isolated from our extended families. For so long, human beings lived in tribes and villages, and so we just had access to people with a variety of experiences who had a different perspective on us. They've known us for longer than we remember ourselves. And maybe they knew our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. So they know about the generational things that we're inheriting. We lived in these tribes. We lived in these micro-societies. And we were intimate with people that could give us a a variety of of perspectives on ourselves. And then also we weren't isolated. So people just knew more about what each other were going through. We weren't isolated. It wasn't a secret. We didn't have to set appointments and send emails and text messages to let people know what we were going through. We lived in intimate and close proximity to each other. And now that's no longer the case for most of us. Most of us are living isolated lives We're experiencing each other through social media, which is curated, and it's just not real. And so our hearts are in need of something that we just don't have access to. And so we're ready to do therapy. But then once we get to that point, we have these barriers to accessing qualified, trained, licensed, diverse mental health professionals, and that's what BetterHelp does. It's an online network of thousands of different types of therapists. There's also different approaches to therapy. Not every therapist approaches it the same way. So BetterHelp gives us access to all of these resources that, that maybe we don't know how to access. If a person has a local therapy office in their neighborhood that they can just walk in and they've got all the insurance and everything all set up and ready to go, that's dope. But for me, I live in Istanbul, Turkey. And so even though my wife is a therapist and I know a lot of therapists, I couldn't just walk into their office. And a lot of times they're licensed in their particular area, you know? So I actually heard about BetterHelp on a podcast and I went to the site, betterhelp.com. In this case, you're going to go to betterhelp.com slash travelers. That lets them know that we hipped you to them. And then also they support the podcast. So you'll be not only embarking on your therapy journey and this self-care that we all deserve, but you'll also be supporting the work that we do here at the Travelers Podcast. So you go there. I went there and I I went to their site and I did this really dope uh, and informative and in its own way therapeutic questionnaire that asked me about, you know, what is it that's bringing you to therapy? What are the things that you want to unpack and explore? And what are some of the experiences that you've had in your life? So some people go to therapy. We all have some sort of entrance point. Some people start because they want to deal with substance abuse. Some people want to deal with a particular trauma. Some people want to deal with relationship issues or family issues. All of these different things can bring us to therapy. And then they ask you about your preferences of what type of therapist you'd like to have. Do you want to talk to a man or a woman? Do you want to talk to a therapist of color? Do you want to talk to somebody that specializes in one of these particular areas? And then from that point, then they show you a variety of people. You see their profile. You see things that other clients of theirs have said. You you get a little understanding for what their approach is. And then you book your own appointment. 
And immediately you can start messaging them. You can send them voice notes. You can send them text messages. When you set your appointment, you let them know, do you want to do a phone call? Do you want to do face-to-face online? Do you want to just keep it to uh, these text messages and, and voice messages for now? And then you talk to a person, and once you start feeling like there's a rapport there, then you start opening up to them. If you don't get to that point, you can change your therapist at any time. No questions asked, no hurt feelings. There's nothing funny about it. Right inside the app, there's a button right there that says change therapist. And you have the opportunity to start browsing again because it's really about finding the right person with the right chemistry and the right dynamic so that you feel comfortable and confident sharing with them. And I started benefiting right away. So that's the reason that we're sharing this online therapy platform. So go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P dot com slash travelers and get going on your therapy journey. You always in your career have really centered women. You know what I'm saying? Like I know how instrumental you are in Rhapsody. I love Rhapsody. They're the key. Uh-huh. Way, way before Rhapsody, women are directly the key to the whole thing. So, you know, just in terms of just getting on, period. Um, I, I did not need a passport until I met Nashon. Like right. the first person to give me a chance, to give me a shot to to say that five I, o'clock in the morning. That I work, you know, for an artist is a woman. You know, it just mm-hmm. so happened that, you know, during that time we got on the Fuji tour. So then I'm looking at another, you know, I mean, monumental woman in terms of Lauren Hill. Um, then again, being from Jersey and, and you start hanging out around the outsiders, you know, in, in, during that time. And it's like Rob mm. Bigger is, is super serious in terms of being one of the yeah. top MCs in that crew. Yeah, man. So, yeah. When, and then and then all the way to Rhapsody where it's just like she is just it's not even her being a woman. It's just the fact of her being one of the best MCs and writers that I've ever heard. But then mm-hmm. take into account that I have worked with women all throughout my career. So then I may be a little bit more aware of certain things than other people when it comes to her and how she has to maneuver and move in the business. There's just certain people that are very intentional about always not only involving women, but centering them. Yeah. Because Knife is like that too. That's like, you know what I mean? Like Knife has done that. Knife was doing that before Rhapsody. Right. You know what I mean? So for both of y'all to be people that have that have been so intentional about that. And then you look like also both people that come from rural backgrounds that are raised in villages that have strong mothers. And you know what I mean? That's a beautiful thing that, that, that ends up really being what gets you into the game seriously, being on tour. And, and so you did the whole Europe tour with the Fugees, right? Yeah. The ready and not tour. Yeah, it was about three months. Crazy. And then you came back, and then that's when you go to master school. Is that when you connected with Chucky Thompson? Yep. So, and again, through Nonchalant. Well, Nonchalant was working on his second album. Um, I went to engineering school. I expressed to her that I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were working on that album. The album never came out. It got shelved by MCA, but we were working on that album. Um, and she introduced me to Chucky Thompson because he was supposed to not only just make music for it, but be the executive producer of it, working with her. Because Obviously, through the DC Connect um, and through non having so much success with Five O'Clock in the Morning. So she's the direct connect to introducing me to him. And that obviously becomes the next step in the elevation of um, not only just engineering, but just life, period. Because like that combination of, of Chucky Thompson and to- Tony Maserati, 
I mean, it's like that's the whole foundation of that part of of music, especially on the East Coast. Like it, it's really. And I know Tony did, and both of them actually worked on stuff that wasn't just East Coast. But mm -hmm. man, something about that particular period. And, and having having a mentor that like literally, you know, not even yeah. in a sly way, but literally the command to sit in his room, learn what he knows. You know what I mean? So that that had to be Chucky directly to me, but then Tony also had to be receptive to that. So. You know, Tony was the one that like just started teaching me the things that you couldn't learn in a book or watching his way of working and figuring out why his records sounded so heavy or they had the sound that they had. That was a huge thing, too. So, I mean, if you, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more just about like that particular mentorship, because it seemed like there's so many influential people around you. But it, it the way that I've heard you talk about Chucky Thompson is that seems like a very clearly like Mr. Miyagi Danielson. Oh, yeah. Five, five between the two of y'all. Absolutely. He he saw early in me. Um, he was the first person that was ever just like breaking down everything in the studio in terms of uh, you know, oh, this is the music reel, and this is gonna be the vocal reel, and we're gonna put all the music on here, and we're gonna put a two-track over here, and then we're gonna do fake vocals over here, then we're gonna bounce that foot back over here, you know, on these two tracks, and then we can do her leads and all her backgrounds. You know, he was literally showing me how to maneuver when you were very limited on tracks um, in the studio, number one. So he was getting a huge sound by just doing dubs and, and bouncing and things of that nature. But I've said it plenty of times that the real key was that he taught me how to live. So, you know, when, when you're trying to exist in this music business where we don't get a check every Friday, you got to figure out how to live. And Chucky was monumental, but it's his personality of him being such an um, incredible person. He was, the, he was one of the nicest people. You know, I never really seen him yell. Um, we never had arguments, none of that type of stuff. He would do things. It, it, it may be something where I may have not understood it at the time, um, but I, I, I just really, and I mean of me ever getting upset with him. But there was one time where we had, we had gone out to the club the night before, just on some older brother, you know, we were going out. And the very next day when I got to work, he had typed up a piece of paper, like almost a memo that was like, these are all the things that you do really good. These are all the things that you need to improve on. And when I first looked at it, my ego kicked in and I was like, so you sat last night and thought about like my deficiencies? And I'm like, yeah, he did. He sat last night and thought about your deficiencies in order to make you better. So he was just like, but he had typed it, with, I guess, which was like really hit home that he put thought into this. And man, just the investment of doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get it at first. That he was trying to make me better. But then, what, you know, after like 30 seconds, it clicked in and the ego left. And I was just like, oh, you're right. You know, that, like that's the type of person he was. He was kind of, and, and the fact that one of the big things is he didn't have to do this. But as he's living in D.C. and getting pulled up to New York City, obviously to work on bad boy things, but to work on a bunch of things, you know, outside of bad boy, because the bad boy producers were being spread around throughout the industry doing a bunch of remixes, doing songs for people. He would make it a point that they would have to fly me, the record company would have to fly me up from D.C. along with him. So he's, you know, he's not only gave me a flight, but another hotel room. And all, again, this is when there were huge budgets for albums, but he was making that point of, I don't work without my engineer. So he was, he was monumental in bringing me to New York early um, in terms of the scene, of, of meeting all the assistants, being at all the studios, um, watching, you know, again, a Tony Maserati work, a Joe Quindy work, or, you know, you know Prince Charles Alexander work, like all, all of those different people. I got to sit in because I'm in there with Chuck. 
and, and let alone I haven't even touched on just what you learn musically from from watching him work. Because he played all the instruments and everything, right? Like he wasn't just sampling records like. Play everything but, but wind instruments. He was a perfect combination of people that can sample and understand what sampling is, but also play by ear. Um, because of, of his go-go background too, it was just like he would mix a lot of different flavors together. So he had the hip hop in him, he had the go-go in him, he had the R&B in him, you know, he had all of that. So it was like this perfect mix of like Teddy Riley, Herbie Lovebug, and, and, and you know, pick your favorite New York producer. Right. So he had all of those things wrapped into one and knew very well how to, how to tap into each of those at the given time. So not only are you getting all of these different experiences in life and getting all these different influences and being able to like spread your roots into all these different areas and pull the, the nutrients out of all these different soils, but then you're seeing it in real life in an elder that's bringing all the things together and see, showing you what it looks like to be able to bring it to life and actually impact the entire game. And, and to be able to, because of the fact that most of the bosses that I've had or, or even just say people I've worked for mm. throughout the music business, most of them are probably four years older than me at maximum. Mm. So that's still sort of a thing where, again, you got to drop this ego of someone relatively your age telling you what to do. And Chucky allowed me not only to do that from a boss standpoint, but also how to work for your friend. So you may get into a natural argument with your friend or have a difference of opinion with your friend, but you got to respect the space that is his company. And it's his movement and it's him that is the, the, the reason why you're here. So mm -hmm. you at least get to state your opinion. But once Chucky says something and I had to go execute it, I think that foundation is what allowed me to work for Jay in that same way, where it's like, okay, you're, you're four years older than me, but you're the, this is your thing. And we're going to go and I, I give you my opinion. You know, it's almost like your lawyer, your doctor, you know, sort of, I'm the expert at this particular thing. I'm going to give you these options. Now you get to choose what you want to do. And then yeah. once you say that, then, then you have me here for my expertise and I'm going to go do those things. That's what that that's key and foundation because I feel like a lot of people can't work for somebody their own age or maybe even somebody younger than them just because of that, that position. So if, if it's me DJing for Alicia Keys and she's leading the way, Alicia Keys is actually younger than me, you know, mm -hmm. but in that situation, she's the actual boss or she's your client, however you want to put it. Right. Um, I don't like the boss word, but that's that's really what it is. It's like this is her expression. It's her name on the thing. So like this is this is her artistic vision that you're that you're helping to facilitate. Yeah, and even if that person may be wrong mm -hmm. in a particular um, choice, it's still their choice. It's their that's company, right. their expression, right. their song. It's their live yeah. show. It's their, you know it's, it's those things. And, and for it to be their thing, it's got to include their wrongness sometimes. Mm -hmm. I was, and, it's, you know, it's interesting, like, just feel, thinking about that, the preparedness to have somebody print out something like that and to have that moment that, like, man, so when we were in the club, you were, you're, you're, you're going through all this and we're hanging out. But that, you know, the fact that it took you 30 seconds, it might take someone else three years. Yeah. And that's, that comes from having been coached and that comes from having been raised by strong men. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you're ready to talk about this and we don't have to include this. But you lost Chucky Thompson and your dad in a short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was devastating. It was, it was on top of that in and of itself in a normal situation would be like almost too heavy for somebody. But it's coming in the middle or, or Chucky was, was in the middle of um, the world shutting down. 
So imagine the mindset of this thing. Everything that I do to generate money is shut down right now. And it's supposed to be recession proof. Like the thing that we do, entertainment, even in a recession, you know, they say booze and, 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 and one other, you know, prostitution or whatever mm-hmm. is supposed to be the thing that, that is recession proof. So I think there's no, there's no live shows. Mm-hmm. There's no um, DJing gigs. There's no clubs open. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's no talking engagements. There's no um, the people aren't people are making music, but they're not rushing to get it mixed and put it out. Like record companies, pretty much just slow down at that time. So it's already this reflection period of the world stopping, and then the dude that's my mentor um, passes away, and it's just like I couldn't for I was stuck for a couple of days of not being able to move, and I couldn't really understand it. Um, you know, just just I wanted to figure out just just why you know what I mean it's the why that I really no no answer to the why um, you know it was a bunch of survivors guilt it was a bunch of like I'm I'm actually happy that the last time that we stopped in DC you know I made a point to go over there and we were like actually mm-hmm. before he was he was working on a um, the four 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 tour has stopped there no not the four 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 everything is love uh, tour has stopped in DC. Mm. And he was working on a Google documentary. So he was like, dude, can you come over and film something? So it's actually document, you know, our last interaction was documented. Um, so that was like a special thing, but it was just like, I don't know, it was a heavy blow. And then for that to happen, and then for my father to pass, it was just, you know, it was almost too heavy. Um, and with my father passing, he was like, I, you know, I already knew he was sick, but, but I just never, I always thought I had more time. Yeah. Um, for for that, and and also too being removed, my father being on the east coast and being in Delaware, and for those two years of COVID, I was in LA. You know, right. we, we were working on the um, Jay Electronica album, and in LA, and his uh, album release, what was supposed to be his album release party, was the first time that the company called us and said, "Look, we can't have all these people in the same room. Like COVID has gotten that serious that you can't even have like us as a as a you know people didn't know if they were legally liable." So literally the company called us and said, we got to shut this down sort of thing. Um, so we didn't have those release parties, but being caught in LA, it was like, okay, now I got to get an apartment and now I got to stay out here and basically be, so I was removed from it. Um, my mother called me and I was actually asleep in LA to tell me that it had happened. So, you know, it kicks you into a different gear. Um, it definitely lets you know that you're commander in chief at this point. Um, because my, my father was definitely the, the, the focal point of not only just my nucleus family, but the entire clan um, sort of thing. He was the the person that was solid and steady, same phone number since, you know what I'm saying, 1979, 1980. Um, you know, that house is always there. Uh, if you needed your taxes done, he was that guy. He was just always, you know, plenty of time people, I don't have money for this, money for that. You know, he was the guy you would call. So, um becoming commander in chief and have to take over. Okay. Well, he was in the middle of taking care of this house in DC and this house in North Carolina. And now I got to go get death certificates and I got to go show that I'm next to Ken and I got to take the soul in it. So the responsibilities came on top of the emotion on top of, you know, um, having some realizations. And, and this is one thing I will share. It was, and, this, and I mean, this in, in a great way that even in perfection, there may not be an angle that you see. So, uh, what I mean by that is that my father took care of everything to the point where my mother never had to ask, where's this bill? Where's that bill? The light has never been cut off. But then when he goes, 
and you don't know certain information, it's like, I should have at least included this person in what I was doing. So you start to see some of these things that even when we think we're in a perfect position, that there could be room for improvement. Because then my mom is like, okay, well, where's this piece of paper? What's the code to this? Uh, where's the insurance papers? Where's the, this? you know, it's like my father was that perfect person. Yeah, man. Something else I wanted to ask about. Thank you so much for sharing that, man. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, it's such a, it's such a major key to this whole, to this whole reality. Um, you know, and I, I, you've been so generous with your time. I got a million things that I could ask you about. Like we could do a series like this, you know what I mean? I, and, um, I would love to, to talk again at some point, but I'm curious, I, I, I want to jump to working with Hove, and there's so many periods in between there, but I want to jump to working with Hove. And so you've worked with so many artists, and you've worked with truly great artists. Like Rhapsody is truly great. Freeway is truly great. Like in the, in the pantheon of people that we love in this culture, that this culture and this art form is not the same. We're not the same without them. There's a lot of them. And, and, but then there's Jay-Z, and it's just different. You know what I mean? There's a lot of amazing comedians. And then there's, you know, uh, George Carlin and there's, you know, Dave Chappelle and there's Ed, like, so you've, you've worked very intimately with a lot of these people. What is it about somebody like Hove that's different from the rest of these people that are absolute miracles? All these people are miracles, but there's something about somebody like a Jay-Z or a Beyonce that's different. What are your, what can you what have you gleaned and observed that's that's transferable to us? Um, that's a good question. I think with Jay is self-awareness, number one. Um, mm. Obviously, him coming in a little older, and I'm, I mean, into the industry a little older than the average age of when MC sort of got in at that time period. You know, most people were late teens, early 20s, and to have your first album at 26, um, and to have lived that sort of life, I think made him very self-aware. Uh, so you understand like your purpose and where you want to go, because a lot of that is a prime example is um say, you know, the trends start changing later and, and you see this auto tune thing come in and most artists will say, okay, well, that's the, that's the new trend and I need to do that. Being self-aware enough to say that doesn't fit me. And you can look at that in different categories. So I think that that self-awareness is there. Obviously I'm skipping over the talent level because some people have the talent, but they don't right. know how to, absolutely apply the talent. So, you know, it's a given that the talent level is there. So the self-awareness, um, being able to pivot and move sonically as the, the times move, I think is an important part that, that adds on to the longevity because certain artists just can't um, move beyond certain time periods or hearing music outside of their time period of when it was the hottest to them. Uh, that and having um, this demeanor of, of calmness, of, of being able to have a certain zen in all situations is, is something that um, I admire because I don't always have that zen. I'm, I'm very much the, you know, if you start by, I may get to a yelling point and, and I'm, I've never really seen him yell. I've never really seen him like get upset. And, and part of it may be, you know, the old school hustler mentality of, of, of just trying to keep your cool at all times. You have to constantly assess all of the angles and all the possibilities because you're dealing with your safety. Absolutely. So I think those things add to it, but, but I think just on top of everything is, is making very informed choices that when you're editing yourself, 
Um, you're saying, is this the best that I can be? Is this the, mm. the way I'm supposed to go? Have I filled in all the holes? You know, he's very blatant with me about, hey, boo, if if this was me in your barbershop, then yeah, I could give you just bars, 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 bars all day. And you guys would be, you would love it. That's that's who you are. That's your crowd. Your barbershop's going to go, ooh, and I and you want to debate it and break them down. But he's like, I also understand, you know, and this is that that famous line of, um, I want to, you know, lyrically, if, you know, if, if I could, if I could just be free, I would be Talib Kweli. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Common and Pharaoh Munch and like, but I ain't been, you know what I'm saying? But I ain't, I ain't so, I ain't been common since. You know, like so, those sort of things are conscious decisions mm-hmm. that, um, and and that taught me lessons that you know there may be songs that um H to the Izzo is probably not one of my favorite songs. I may not pick that song, but I understood exactly what that was going to do in the world. So I understand that it's a sing-along song. I understand that kids are going to gravitate towards it. I understand that, you know, there may be advertising campaigns that can use that record. It's um, having that balance of knowing when to not over-rap the song mm-hmm. and to let the song be the song. And the importance is the vibration of the song more than somebody saying, this is the illest verse that I've ever heard. Right. So yes, it's really well-constructed verses, but if mm-hmm. it starts taking away from the feel um, it's sort of like the same argument that funk artists would have with jazz artists. And right. like where a jazz artist is doing these super complicated movements. <laughs> like, yeah, but okay, who's dancing to that? Who's dancing to that? Who feels that? Are we stopping, are we stopping to watch you do that versus us feeling funk? Mm-hmm. And the thing of jazz artists looking at funk artists and being like, well, that's simple. You're only using three chords. And it's like, but look at how the crowd. You're, you're playing the same riff for an hour. Like, come on, man. Can we please? Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that that sort of thing is, is an understanding. I think that he has song wise of picking songs and knowing where to go with that. And still, it's almost like when LL had that skill of knowing that my audience is this and I'm catering to the ladies on every album. I'm going to remind you that I can really right. rap. I'm going to give you four, three, two, one on another on one album just to show right. you. You know what I mean? I'm still in that space. Or and if any- I go too far, I'm gonna give you. Mama said, "Knock you out." Yeah, yeah. Because then he came back with a whole album that's like, "Hey, no, 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 no." Now like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the I shot you on his albums are those the ones that are just like, don't forget that I can really rap. So yeah. I think that's again a long winded way of saying that that these are key things that I think are conscious things that, that um, Hope does that adds to the reason why he is who he is. Yeah. And that's where I get back to the, like, you know, his being able to explore and being able to push things in directions that some of us would be like, we might not understand at the time that like, he's actually making, he's making like this verse is also going to be a hook. And you don't realize, I didn't realize that until some of those songs were played in a club and I'm like, oh, all the all the girls and the white people in here are singing along with the verse the same way they sang along with the hook. Mm-hmm. Like the verse is just basically another hook almost. You know what I'm saying? Well, we, we put these things that we we call them tricks, but it's, mm. it's really crowd participation. So again, it's about to go down. Exactly. And I wish I never met her at all. That yeah. those things are no. This is I'm not trying to overwrap the song. I purposely put this part in there for you to sing along with. It's a sing-along moment. Not only in the club that's going to be attractive, but also in the show is going to be attractive. So mm-hmm. it's that's that's what he would title dumbing it down. And I think people 
um, got offended when they were, when they used that particular term of saying dumbing it down. It's not. It's that we're trying to be less complicated, or or to say it in a little Wayne version where he said, "Well, um, if I'm, if, you know, what I'm saying if I'm too simple, then y'all don't understand the basics." You know, like, right, 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 right. You know, Wayne is saying the same thing. I could rap on this complex level, but sometimes I'm bringing it to this level. Or, you know, the difference between Andre 3000 and Big Boy. Sometimes you need Big Boy to ground the, mm-hmm. the, the outer space things that Andre 3000 is talking about. Mm-hmm. And you see not only the evolution of an artist, like all of those things are still very rooted in art. Yeah. Like he, like he just is an artist. And so everything that he does will still be artistic. And there are sometimes where like the music wasn't my favorite. Like Justify My Thug musically is not my favorite, but there's verses on there. There's lines in that song that still with me as a grown man, I still think to myself, I'll tighten my belt before I ask for help. Foolish pride is what held me together through the years I never felt, which is why I never played myself. I just played a hand I'm down. Like I live by those things. Those are in my head with the Quran and everything else. Mm-hmm. But so like we've seen this man like not only show us so much artistically, but show us so much as a human. Right. You know what I'm saying? And But there are chambers both musically and in terms of like what the message was. So like, I think me and you come from a similar place where it's like, we probably are more radical than, so like black capitalism might not resonate with us immediately. I, I don't know if that's the same, but I'm assuming we're coming, like with the, the conversation me and you had about Dubois recently, I'm like, we might be in a similar place there. And there was a period where it felt like that's where he was at. And so I'm wondering for you, both musically and also the message, are there ever times where um, where you're feeling particularly, because it feels like there's always a conversation between you all going on that's showing up in the work. Mm-hmm. That like if he if he's getting on a certain type of thing too much, it's like you being in the room will balance it and ground it so that it's still going to translate, like you being a translator. Are there times where you ever have tension with that, though? No, we don't we don't necessarily have tension because, well, now I'll say three things. Number one is I understand that I'm there to help facilitate his expression. If it was me saying my raps, then it may you know there's gonna be I I didn't sell (laughs) drugs. I didn't do, you know what I'm saying? You may have a difference of opinion on certain small things, but I'm helping the artists become the best them. And it's not what I think they should be, it's helping them be the best them. Number one. Number two is that when we have these long discussions about those particular topics, and let's take, like, say, capitalism, for instance, where you start to see another side of it as to where you see someone who does actually get money, but I see the things that he does with the money. And so mm-hmm. some of the critiques that happen at a holistic level of capitalism, um, I start to see the intricacies of it and how you can start to use that for good. And then you start to redefine what you, what your critique of a certain thing and you come to figure out that it's like, no matter what system we're in, right? Socialism, capitalism, communism, we can show examples across the world to where mm-hmm. the unrighteousness of the person running it is what really is determining why that system runs the way that it runs. Mm-hmm. If, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. So I start to, I start to see where it's just like, he doesn't report on it or he may not always say it about him giving away so much money to all these different organizations. It doesn't necessarily have to even be a charity. It could be a thing where, right. um, you, you know, you're just giving it away or if something happens, he's the person that can automatically make something move or starting yeah. foundations or starting schools and things, it's mm-hmm. things that he never, you know, really talks about. Um, and then, and then I guess those, those, uh, extra things that I see 
are based off of conversation, long conversations that we have. Yeah, man. I mean, you've been so generous with your time, brother. And I actually have a, I, I got a, a VIP meet and greet on my own around the corner in about three minutes. But man, I just have to say, man, on, on behalf really of myself, but also just of the culture, man, you know, without you playing the role that you've played and being the person that you are, not only with Hove, but with so many others, man, like I can't imagine where we would be. You know, the people, it's, it's really easy to take shots at somebody like Jay, um, but Imagine where we would be if we didn't have somebody like that in the position that he's in. You right. know what I mean? Like, I, I think we would be incredibly lost. Like, the fact that he still is the standard by which everybody needs to be checked and needs to be measured. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a, another argument other than him being the greatest of all time. You can argue about who you love and who you appreciate and admire and things like that. But the role that you've played in that. And then also, you know, in the culture and, and with so many of us, man, like we're we're deeply indebted to you and deeply grateful t to you and for you and, you know, to your family and to your community and to all your mentors and to all of the people that have loved you and poured into you and cared for you and trained you and taught you and prepared you. It really means a lot, man. And I'm really grateful for you taking the time to talk. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you, man. I appreciate your music, your work, too. All right, family. Thank you so much, man. I'm right, my man. Have a good day. Peace, you too. Special thanks to the great young guru for being so generous with his time and his insight and his stories. You know, he's a really, really busy person. Guru is always in demand. And then, so not only was he busy at this time, but you can hear at the end of the podcast that I had to jump out of this. And I was at an Airbnb when we recorded this, just about two blocks from my two sold-out Minneapolis shows with uh, early VIP meet and greets. So I jumped up from the chair doing this interview, sprinted around the corner, and got over there just in time for my for my meet and greets. And I actually left it recording. <laughs> like I, that's how quick I jumped up. I left this joint recording. So when I went back to listen to it, I can hear myself grabbing my keys and you know putting on my shoes and washing my hands and brushing my teeth and running out the door. You know what I'm saying? To go to that. So just very grateful that me and Young Guru were able to get this conversation in. And thank you for listening. Go to brotherali.com and sign the mailing list. That's how you know what's going on with us. Go to the section called Join and Get Down with the Caravan. That's where people can interact and support on, a, on another level. We just did a, a limited vinyl drop, and those things sell out. It was only 500 pieces. Those things sell out, and people get mad because, you know, they want to have them. And the caravan members actually got a chance to order those early because of their support. And the top tier of caravan members are called Trailblazers. Those people actually got the record early as a straight up gift just for all their support since we've been doing this. Also, that top tier has access to a Slack channel. Like we're members of a private Slack channel where we record and leave each other voice notes. Sometimes I give prompts for a conversation just to spark conversation and people from really different walks of life that would not know each other otherwise are sharing our reflections, our experiences, just checking in with each other. And it's a really, really beautiful experience. So head to brotherali.com, sign the mailing list, go to the section called join, get down with the caravan. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You know what I'm saying? Make sure to like and share and comment and subscribe. All of that, rate it. All of that good stuff helps spread the word about the podcast. 
Um, special thanks to Zakat Foundation, to BetterHelp. Of course, our link there is betterhelp.com slash travelers. You can get down with the therapy journey over there if that makes sense for you. Special thanks to Amna Mirza, to Mansour Panawala, to Darian Washington, to DJ Last Word, to Mark from Medina, to Ant, to Ida Rashid, to Shane Atkinson, to uh, Rami Neshashibi and Sadia Nawab. Thank you to everybody that contributes to this podcast. Even the people that just hit me up and tell me what they like about it. You know what I'm saying? We're very, very grateful and appreciative to you all. Traveler's Podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1. And it's a production of Traveler's Media Incorporated. We love you. We appreciate you. And we wish you well. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.